right, good morning, everybody. Hopefully you're all there. Second Kings chapter 3 is where we'll be this morning. Moab rebels against Israel. Um, let's pray, and then I'll give some announcements. Lord, we thank you for this morning and the ability to open your word in our wonderful free country that we live in and study and uh, learn and glean everything you have for us. I pray that you have prepared our hearts through this worship time, the singing, to receive everything you have, as that'll be very important in this chapter, as we see how important music is to you. Lord, I pray that you'd speak now by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. A couple announcements. Um, excited about next week, Mother's Day, we'll be having a church here, physical church is back up and running. Uh, 9 o'clock service and 11 o'clock service with Sunday School for Kids at 11. So looking forward to seeing all those who feel comfortable coming back, come on back. If you don't feel comfortable coming back yet, we completely understand. Uh, we will continue this ministry. This is a permanent new ministry for us at Calvary Chapel Maryville. Um, so we'll still be live streaming just like we are at the 9 o'clock time. And of course, then it's available for replay throughout the day. So um, if you're not ready to get out and, and be around other people uh, in, in, that, in this kind of setting. We understand completely, um, and there's no pressure. Uh, we, just, we just know that we're essential and we need to get back together again, and all those that want to be able to do that, we, we want to make that available to them. So next week, uh, business as usual, worship as usual. Tonight at 7 o'clock, we'll be having prayer here physically at the church. You're welcome to join us for that if you want to. Um, just a time of corporate prayer where we lift up the things that are on our hearts, our country, our own personal prayer requests, and those that we bring with us from other people, and we'll be praying here in the sanctuary. So you're welcome to join us tonight at 7 if you'd like to do that. All right, 2 Kings chapter 3. We left off last week with Elisha uh, doing some neat things, um, doing his first miracles, having that first taste of of God's power in his life as he throws the mantle down and the water separates and healing the waters of Jericho uh, as they had some difficult uh, bitterness in their water and on their land. And he went ahead and, and, and threw some salt in and, and the Lord healed their waters in their land. It was a wonderful moment for him. And, and even when you have those wonderful moments, uh, you got a bunch of people that still aren't happy with you. And uh, that's a tough place to be in. Uh, you can please uh, some people, some of the time, but you can't please everybody all the time. It's just not the way it works. And so some youth came out after him and started chasing him and called him Baldy, and he pronounced a curse on him, and uh, some bears took care of him. So um, God is definitely with Elisha. And so we pick up that story with three different kings coming together uh, as a federation, and they're going to go against this group called Moab. Uh, a little background, Moab has been subservient to the nation of Israel, uh, the 10 northern tribes, for a while now. And as they change kings, Israel changes kings, Moab sees that as their opportunity to break those chains. Uh, they feel in bondage to Israel, and so they want to break away from that. So they're not going to do what they normally do. And of course, Israel's not going to let that stand, and they're going to come up against them, and that's where we pick up our story. Verse 1, now Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel at Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned 12 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord, but not like his father and mother, for he put away the sacred pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he persisted 
in the sins of Jeroboam, uh, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin, he did not depart from them. That's our first break. Now, this is a very simple chapter, and I don't mean to make it complicated, but I was very blessed as I was studying this, seeing things I'd never seen before. Two things specifically, and those are the things I'll focus on. The first one here is when I see that this guy, this new king, decided to try to do a little better than his mom and dad, but didn't come all the way, didn't go all the way back to the Lord. He removed the sacred pillar of Baal, but he still kept so much of the other. So many other gods had infested uh, the nation of Israel that he, getting rid of this giant pillar, thought, well, that's a good step, but he doesn't do the reformation. He doesn't do the repentance completely. He leaves a lot of these ungodly little G gods in his life and in his nation's life. And so the Bible documents it as he did evil in the sight of the Lord. It's not acceptable. And I got to thinking about that throughout this chapter, we're going to see these three Kings very unsure about where they stand with the Lord. They're not sure that God's with them. They're not sure. uh, There's guilt. There is shame. There is this distance between the the true and living God, which they vowed to worship and to have only in their lives, and they know what they're supposed to do, and their actual life where they kind of dabble. They dabble in their worship. And so I wanted to do some cross-references here. There are a lot of them. I'm going to warn you. Uh, the guys are going to try to put these up as fast as they can, so I'll read slowly. The, if you don't get them all, it's okay. I just saw how important it was in Exodus as the On Wednesday nights, we're watching Joseph step into Egypt, right? And become the number two guy in Egypt. And we see that as the beginning of the nation of Israel moving into Egypt, multiplying in Egypt. But of course, the book of Exodus is about them being brought out by Moses. We know that. So there's your background for this. When they get brought out by Moses, I was amazed as I was studying today how important the very first commandment is. I know it's important. I think we all know it's important. You shall have no other gods before me. We know that. It's so known, it's so obvious that we almost skip over it to get to the next ones. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, all those other, you know, those more practical ones. Of course, we're not supposed to have any other gods. And yet, as you go through Exodus, you're going to see that not only is that the first and most important commandment, all the other commandments hinge upon that. All the behaviors that follow not worshiping God only are the, bear the fruit of guilt in our lives. And, and so let me run through some cross-references. The first one is Exodus chapter 12, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt, God said, on that night, and will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt. So this is the 10th plague he's talking about both man and beast, and against all the gods, little g, of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. His last plague, and the other nine, by the way, were all direct assaults on all the gods of Egypt. He came in to let everybody know, not only Israel, but even in Egypt, it was an education. They were all being schooled. There are no other gods. There ain't no frogs. There ain't no fly gods, none of these things. And he attacked at the Nile God, all of these things. He attacks and says, there is nobody but me. There is nobody but me. And so his final one is, I'm going to execute judgment on all these gods because I'm the Lord. 
Nobody else created the earth. Nobody else created everything that we see. Nobody else created me. Nobody else created you. It's truly just one God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit is the only creator. And he wants us to know that because when we don't have that clear in our minds, when we begin to dabble into other areas, now we don't call them little gods a lot of times, and it's really hard, I think, for us to define. We don't have a little shrine in our house with a little wooden image with some candles around it and fruit, and we begin to bow down to it. We're not that obvious with them. So how do I explain or how do we teach or how do we know in our own lives what a truly a little G is, a little God in our lives? How do I identify that? And I think it's by our behavior. It's by the fruit that comes from it. I think that's the only way. I, I was thinking about Paul and how he tells the Corinthians, look, there's a conscience we need to worry about in everybody. And I don't want to do anything that's going to hurt your conscience. And so it has nothing to do with the fact that I bought this meat at a market that's usually sold for meat for gods. I don't think of these gods as anything. They're nothing to me. I know they don't exist. So I buy the meat because it's at a discount. And yet somebody else doesn't have that knowledge that I have. And so they may be stumbled by the fact that I bought that meat there. And they may think, well, that guy who bought that meat there thinks it's okay to worship little gods when that's not what's happening at all. But for their conscience sake, I have to avoid that appearance of looking like I'm worshiping little G's because the fruit of that is they have a, a, a damaged conscience. So that being said, how do I identify little G's in my life? Well, let's finish the thought here as we go to Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, eight chapters later. You shall have no other gods before me, little G. That's the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Exodus 20, verses 22 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall, say, you shall say to the children of Israel, you have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make anything to be with me, gods of silver, gods of gold. You shall not make for yourselves. In other words, you've already seen that I talk from heaven, so there ain't nothing on earth you can make that's going to replicate me. So don't do it. Three chapters later, Exodus 23, verse 13. And in all that I have said to you, be circumspect. And make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard from your mouth. He is adamant about this. Their connection and their worship of him is going to be, with a whole heart and a whole mind, is completely dependent upon the fact that they keep him not only first in their life, but only. I think that's the, the biggest thing here. I don't want God first and then have second, third, fourth, fifth place gods in my life. It's him and him only. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. He's not talking about order. He's talking about in his presence. There should be no other gods, period, in my life. And so he says, don't even let those things come out, those names of those other gods be on your mouth. Exodus 23, 24, a few verses later, you shall not bow down to their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. I don't want you to have anything to do with them. Make no room for them in your land or in your life. Exodus 23, 32, a few verses more. You shall make no covenant with them, meaning the people, nor with their gods. Because that's what will happen. When you have a person you're dealing with that does not worship the true and living God, and you make an agreement with them, sometimes you end up making agreement with their little God. Whatever drives them, whatever their focal point is in their life, whatever they're trying to negotiate with you, 
when you negotiate back and say, yeah, okay, I see it your way, essentially you're saying, I see it the way your God sees it. He's saying, be careful about that. Make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. Exodus 23, 33, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. He's very concerned with losing them to little G's, to these other gods. Exodus 32, 1. Now then, when the people saw that Moses delayed coming down from the mountain, the people gathered together to Aaron and said to him, and you know the story, come, make us gods that shall go before us. For as this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Their very first difficulty, their very first trial, their very first moment where they're a little unsure because God has been silent with them, although not silent with Moses, they immediately run to the little G's. He knows our hearts. He knows our tendency is to fall back and to hold on to things that are customary for us, things that are, we're used to, things that are wooden, something tangible, something I can hold on to. I don't think I'd make a very good politician. In fact, I know I wouldn't, not in the world's eyes anyway. Because when it comes to being in a meeting or coming to a task force or whatever it may be, I'm showing up with these words on my mouth. Last night I was praying to my God and he showed me this is the direction we should go. Yeah, but the data says this. Yeah, but the, the, all, all the circumstances says this. I don't care about those things. I truly listen to the Lord. I truly pray and trust his guiding in my life. I'm going to do what he tells me to do. I don't care about the rest of it. I want to be guided by God. And so I know that wouldn't be accepted. That'd be really hard for people without taking into consideration all the things that everybody else takes into consideration. What about this? What about that? I guess that's God's problem. Because as for me and my house, we serve the Lord and we're led by the spirit and the spirit expressly says, this is what I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to do it. So these guys in this chapter are doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And I think because they don't have God as the true and living God, all these insecurities, all this unknown in their life is directly as a, res as a direct result of them not having the true and living God as the only God in their life. They've got all these other distractions. So he had told them to put away their gods. He had told them not to do all these things. Don't do evil in the sight of the Lord. Don't worship these other things. Getting rid of one God, one sacred pillar of Baal isn't enough. It needs to be a complete transformation. I have people come up to me all the time. How do I know that I'm being led of the Lord? How do I know that I'm hearing from the Lord? How do I? There isn't an answer for that, except that first, you know, I've got my standard ones, things that I have grown accustomed to. Well, did you get anything out of God's word? You really, being led of the spirit but this is the sword of the spirit. I like to confirm these things that are on my heart by getting a scripture that kind of jumps off the page at you. You know, do you have peace about the decision? And does your wife have peace or does your husband have peace about it? That helps you know, because the two have become one flesh. If you've got a check in the spirit, one or the other better hold off and pray a little longer kind of thing. But I say that with the understanding in my heart, that's unspoken that you've only got one God in your life. Because I only have one God in my life. I truly only worship the true and living God. So there, 
there are no other voices in my head. There is nothing else speaking to me, telling me to move this way or to go that way. I, I truly have my own flesh that I have to deal with all the time. And then I have God. And I know those two voices. I know when it's me and I know when it's him. I've, I've learned the difference over time that my ways are not his ways. And so I wait to hear from the Lord and I make to make sure that I know I'm the weak link, that I'm hearing correctly from him. But when you have other gods in your life, when you have other important things, people whose voices or things or circumstances, voices that are just as loud as God's in your life, or that even might be half the volume of God in your life, it causes you to pause and hesitate as far as following God. It's very important to remove all these gods, these little G's, and they haven't. Verse 4, now Misha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he regularly paid the king of Israel 100,000 lambs and the wool of 100,000 rams. But it happened when Ahab died that the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram, he's the new king of Israel, went out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. Then he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, saying, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? And he said, I will go up. I am as you, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, Which way shall we go up? And he answered, By way of the wilderness of Edom. So, He's got one ally with him now, and these are his brothers. These are the two southern tribes. Will you come with me to battle? Now, they don't normally get along, and they've agreed to disagree. They're not at war with one another, but they certainly don't. Well, they're not together like they're supposed to be. It's supposed to be the 12 tribes of Israel, but instead it's 10 and 2. So there's a little, just a, a glitch right now. Um, it turns into a bigger glitch, but for now it's a glitch right now. When it comes to war, though, you bet. We may have our disagreements, but we have a common enemy, and that's everybody else. So when everybody else is against us, you can bet that we're going to be on your side. And that's a good thing. And so he's got this king of uh, Judah joining him. How should we go up? Let's go up through Edom. Now, the Edomites are Esau's relatives. That's that group, okay? Um, and a lot of times they'll join forces as cousins, you know, basically, distant cousins. We're going to come in together and we're going to go to war. And, and so let's go up through Edom and grab them while we're there. Now, it's a tough trip. If you go through Edom all the way up to this uh, to this place where they're going to fight. It's a dry trip, which is going to play into the story today. So I've got Judah. Let's grab a few more guys. We'll go to Edom. So the king of Israel, verse 9, went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. So he picked them up along the way. And they marched on that roundabout route seven days. In other words, it wasn't a direct route. It was a roundabout route. So we're going to go through some tough terrain. And it took seven days, a full week. And there was no water for the army nor for the animals that followed them. And the king of Israel said, Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Now, that's the king of Israel. The king of Israel just said, God has brought us together to lose to Moab. Remember that. That'll be important later on in the story. That's his view. Circumstances are hard. I'm not sure where I stand with God. I thought I was supposed to go up to battle, but it looks like we're all going to die here. We're seven days in. We're stuck in the middle of the desert. None of us have any water. For us to turn back, we'll die. We don't have enough water to get back. To go forward, we'll die. God has got them in a very tough place. There's no water here. There's no supply. They expected the wells to be full. They expected there to be springs. 
pools someplace where they can get water, and there isn't any. And so because they don't know where they stand with God on a daily basis, they certainly are concerned in a tough situation. I think God's trying to destroy us. Is he? Is their evaluation of the situation accurate? Or is it because they don't know where he stands or where they stand with God? If they were worshiping the true and living God every day, if they were doing what was right in the sight of the Lord, if they were having their quiet times, if they were in prayer, if they were reading the word, if they were fellowshipping together virtually, or (laughs) it's a joke, or in person, if they were all serving God, they would know where they stand with him because they're doing right. But that guilty conscience causes them to feel distant. I'll take you back to the Garden of Eden. When they were told, Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil, of all the other trees you can eat, including the tree of life, but don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As soon as they did the one thing God asked them not to do, their guilty conscience caused them to do what? To go hide. They heard him walking in the cool of the day, which means God was still going to show up. God was still going to fellowship with them. God was still going to walk with them. But because of their guilty conscience, they hid from God. That's what happens to us. There's a common phrase used. Sin will keep you from this book, but this book will keep you from sin. And that's a fact. I believe that plays out almost 100% of the time. When someone is steeped in sin and they have it, and they know they're not supposed to be doing it, they will not crack the Bible because they know what it's going to tell them. Nor will they show up for church because they know what they're going to hear there. There's a guilty conscience that separates them. They separate themselves from the Lord. They take a step back. And that's where these guys find themselves. We don't worship the true and living God only. We have other little G's in our lives. So we're confused about our relationship with him. We're not sure where we stand. Those things need to go. They need to worship him and him alone. And maybe that's something you need to decide this morning. Maybe that's something you haven't checked in your life recently because they can show up. You may have at the beginning forsaken all those other little G's and gotten rid of all of them, but somehow or another they've, they've, they've crept back into your life or new ones have cropped up and they haven't been pulled out because, well, they're kind of cute or they're kind of fun or they seem harmless, but they've actually brought confusion to you. They've actually brought doubt, a guilty conscience. They've caused you to take a step back from the Lord. And that's how I identify the little G's in my life. I don't know that I can say that a Corvette is a little G in everybody's life. It's probably not. Or a super nice car is what I'm getting at. A a, a baby that you wipe down, you know, a car that you wipe down with a diaper every night before you go to bed because you love it so much. I'm not sure that's a little G for everybody, but it may be for you. You maybe have a hobby. Maybe I've got something that is louder than the voice of God in my life. It's more important than the voice of God in my life, a clear conscience. And because I have that, because I know that about myself, that this is a tendency that I have, this is something super important to me, it causes me to doubt where I stand with the Lord. Because I know at times these two G's, capital G, the true and living God, and this little G are at odds with one another. I know I'm supposed to be here, but I'd rather be here. And that causes me to feel guilt. That causes me to have a a defiled conscience. That causes me to take a step back from the big G because I know I can't look him in the eye anymore. 
because I know how he feels about this. So I don't want to list off all those things because other people can have nice cars. Other people can have that hobby. Other people can do those things, and it doesn't affect their relationship with God because it's not a little g. But if God by his Holy Spirit convicts me of this thing in my life, it needs to go. I don't have to justify it. I don't have to make an excuse to keep it in my life. If I feel like the Lord's telling me and speaking to me, I, I, I feel like I'm in competition with this thing in your life, then I want it to go. I want to get rid of it because I don't want him to feel that way. And I don't want to have that with him. I want to have a, an unbroken fellowship with the Lord. I want to have a pipeline that's wide open of communication with God. I speak to him and he speaks to me and we have this beautiful, loving, full relationship. But these little G's get in the way sometimes. Not his fault, but my fault. So they're not sure where they stand. What do we do? We're, we're going to dry out here. We're going to perish. Verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom, and they marched round about, and they found themselves that God is going to kill us here. Verse 11, but Jehoshaphat said, is there no prophet of the Lord here? Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah. They're closer to the Lord than Israel. Don't we have a prophet around here that speaks to the Lord? Don't we have someone that has a direct line? So one of the servants of the king of Israel answered and said, Elisha, the son of Shaphat is here who poured water on the hands of Elijah, which means he served Elijah. He's, he's the replacement. He's the, the new guy. And Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now, you'll skip over it. I have skipped over it until this morning. It, it begins there with, so one of the servants. Who's this guy? The king has made a question basically to everybody in the room. Is there anybody that hears from the Lord? Now, the king shouldn't have to say that because he should be led of the Lord, but he knows he's not. He's not sure where he stands with God. So he asks, isn't there anybody that hears from God? And as nobody in their armies are finding water, everybody has a mind of their own. They're all looking around at the circumstances saying, if we don't do something, we're all going to die. I know, I know for a fact that there are guys in these armies wondering, has anybody prayed about this? Did anybody seek the Lord before we started marching off into the middle of the desert with no water strapped to our backs? Has anybody thought this through? Did anybody see? And I guarantee you this servant's been waiting to give this information. I wonder what Elisha would say. I wonder what, I wonder what the scriptures say about this. I wonder what God says about this. I wonder. So when the king gives him his in, does anybody know if anybody hears from the Lord? This servant finally says, yes, I've been thinking about this. Now he doesn't say all that. He says, yep, there's Elisha. And he served Elijah. Now they don't get along, but the, the, those two do. Elijah and Elisha do, but the king and, and the prophets don't normally. But there's this guy, Elisha, he'll do it. He'll hear the Lord. I don't think I'll ever be a king, probably of a nation, and nor will you. But I do want to be that servant that is so much thinking about God, so interested in praying, so interested in my own walk with him, and I'm tight with him, that when the question comes up, is there anybody that knows what God thinks about this? That I can raise my hand. Say, I can. I can tell you exactly what God's word says about this. We want to be those people. We're called to that. 
in a meeting full of confusion, in a committee full of confusion, in a whatever worldly circumstance you find yourself that's full of confusion, you can bring by the power of the Holy Spirit, because you're a child of God who worships the true and living God, you can bring clarity. You can bring peace. You will stand out in that crowd as they're all arguing and bickering and don't know what to do. And they see that, oh, oh, and they're pulling their hair out. And they ask, does anybody have anything else? You can raise your hand. You can say, well, I can tell you what the true and living God says. Now, they may not have been ready for that at the beginning of the meeting, but in the middle of the meeting or the end of the meeting, when they've come to the end of their own intellect and to the end of their own data and their own situation, you can bring clarity and say, well, here's what God's word says about it. They may be ready to receive it at that time. They may not, but you can bring it like this servant did. It's a beautiful picture. I love it. Verse 13. So they go to see Elisha. Then Elisha said to the king of Israel, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, no, for the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, uses the name of the Lord. For the Lord, he says, has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Well, that's not what he said a few verses ago, is it? He says up here, let's read it again. Uh, verse 7. The, oh, wait. No, 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 no. Let's see. Where are we? Pause. There it is. Verse 10. Alas, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. Versus what he's telling the prophet now. For the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them. Oh, into the hand of Moab. It's the same thing. <laughs> Sorry. He's worried about it. And Elisha said, as the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, surely were it not that I regard the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not look at you nor see you, but now bring me a musician. Now that's a terrible place to pause because what are we going to do with this poor musician guy? You know, is he a sacrifice? What is he? Um, but he says, if it wasn't for the fact that you have Judah with you, the king of Judah, I probably wouldn't listen to you because I, at least I know that he listens. I'll let you all listen into what I would tell him specifically. If he came to me by, my, by myself, it was just him, he and I, I would share with you what the Lord has to say. But since you're with him and he's with you, I'll go ahead and let all three of you listen in on the conversation. But he makes it a point to say, don't call on God just when you're having a bad day, just because you can't find water. Just because you're in trouble and you've come to the end of your own resources, that's not the time that you decide to truly worship the true and living God. I want you to worship the true and living God, he says, all the time. Otherwise, why don't you go back to those other gods you worship that are convenient, the ones that uh, you choose to worship, that, that make you feel better about your sin, the things that you've justified in your own mind. Why don't you go ask those dead, inanimate gods what they think of the situation? Well, they can't. They can't because they know there's no answer, because they know that wood, rock, these things don't speak, because there's nothing there. They were created by man, for man, to look like man. And that's all the little G's in our lives do. They all look like us, things we like, things we prefer. I was thinking about that. At the beginning of this chapter, verses 1 through 3, he decides, he decides, think that through, the king decides to remove the sacred pillar of Baal. 
right there, he already knows that he's in charge of the gods. The gods aren't in charge of him. At any point, I can remove the sacred pillar of Baal. If I choose to, I could bring the sacred pillar back. Well, who's the God now? The king is. And that's how it is in all of our lives. I can choose to remove this. If you can remove this little thing from your life, it's nothing to worship. That's the key. So he says, why don't you go ask the little G's? He said, well, no, because we're afraid and we think we're going to die. No, for the Lord has called these three kings together to deliver them into the hand of Moab. We we don't think we're going to live. He says, well, bring me a musician. And he says this, then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. And that's a break right there. I want to take some time. This is the only other time we're going to break. The rest of it, we're going to read all through. So I want to take some time on these. Worship is so important in our relationship with God. And I know that, but I have read the Bible, I don't know how many times. I guess it's because I'm excited to get to chapter four when Elisha makes that widow's oil last a long time, you know, she gets to do and pour into all the other jars and all these things. And that's coming up. And what a great story that you miss this little tiny story where the prophet of God says, I'm about to speak to you, but before I do, before I can hear from the Lord or do hear from the Lord, I need a musician to come and play some worship for me. And after that happens, when the musician begins to play under the power of the spirit, he is able to give out. Then it happened when the musician played that the hand of the Lord came upon him. That's why we make it so important as a part of our worship time. There's four things to our worship time. We worship in prayer. We worship in song. We worship in hearing the word of God and we worship in our giving. Those are four things that we try to incorporate into every one of these things. Those are acts of worship, things we do. I want to be a prayer. I want to be a singer. I want to be a hearer of God's word and a doer of God's word. And I want to make sure that God is preeminent in my life and that I tithe and understand by giving, I give back to God what he's given to me. I I identify and recognize the source of my provision. That's the idea behind it. So we do those four things Um, almost every Sunday and Wednesday, we try to do that. And so this musician steps up. How important is it? That's why we do 20 minutes or, or so of song and worship. It prepares our hearts to receive the word of God. Now, I don't believe Calvary Chapels use this verse only to design our worship you know, moments with God. We don't set up our services based off this scripture, but it is an important one. We base it off of the fact that we see David playing the harp or the, the lute before, uh, or the lyre, I don't know which it is, an instrument, a string guitar, basically, in front of Saul, and it takes away and, and calms that disquieting spirit sent from the Lord. We know that Psalms, the entire book of Psalms, is a book of songs. Maybe we don't, re- because there's no notes mixed with it, we don't know the tune personally. They did back then, but we don't know today. When you read through the Psalms, those are all songs. Right in the middle of scripture, he's got this little hymnal meant for us because that's how important song is. It's not a side thing. It's not a, a throwaway. It's, it's central to our worship. To sing praises to God changes our hearts. If you read through the Psalms, you'll see that as David starts off downcast, low, in a difficult spot, as he sings through the song, by the time he's done giving praises to God and making his requests be known to God through prayer and song in the same moment, his heart changes. 
Ah, but you, God, as I focus on you, as I lift my eyes off of my problems and onto you, I begin to realize how little those are and how magnificent you are and how unimportant and how temporary my problems are compared to you. And it changes and it lifts him up and it brings him peace. Those songs that we sing, they're not something to skip over. You don't want to skip over that portion of our worship time here at Calvary. You don't want to skip that over. You may not have been prayed up before you drove into the parking lot or turned on your device, whatever you're watching on, but we should have been prayed up beforehand. And then after we're prayed up, we sit down and we begin to sing praises to God, getting our hearts in the right place to receive and get the perspective that God has. It prepares us, it softens us, so that when the Word of God is taught, we're ready to receive it. I believe the Word of God wouldn't bounce off the soil of our hearts near as much if we'd prepare the soil beforehand. If we'd pray and then sing and then receive and then water. You know, the Holy Spirit comes along and waters and we bear much fruit in our lives. And I think this scripture shows us that. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23, and so it was, whenever the Spirit of God was upon Saul, and that's the the. The, the bad spirit, the spirit that would cause him to kind of lose his mind, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. Now, I, I don't know, I don't understand necessarily the, 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 the fight that was going on there, except that maybe God removed himself, his spirit from Saul, which we know had happened, and that this distressing spirit is not, you know, it's not, it's, it's doing what Saul wants it to do in his life, basically. And David steps in as a man who's right with God, beginning to sing psalms, causes that distressing spirit to leave, has to. And Saul gets right. Now, Saul isn't saved. Saul isn't right with God, but the distressing spirit isn't bothering him anymore, and it works. There's something that happens there. Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty firmament. Praise him for his mighty acts. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with timbrel and dance. Praise him with stringed instruments and flutes. Praise him with loud cymbals and clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Song is so important. Worship, singing in worship is so important. And we see that in this text here. First Chronicles 13, 8. Then David and all Israel played music before God with all their might, with singing on harps and stringed instruments and tambourines on cymbals and with trumpets. Praising the Lord is essential to our walk. I'm not one of those guys that likes to sing. Well, get over it. Start singing. I don't think I could play an instrument. Then just grab a kazoo and begin to hum along the tune but play with all your might. It doesn't matter. Play with all your might, not with half strength, but with excellence. Praise the Lord, okay? Anyway, he does that. Verse 16, and he said, this is the prophecy that came. Thus says the Lord, make this valley full of ditches. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind, nor shall you see rain, yet the valley shall be filled with water, so that you, your cattle, and your animals may drink, 
And this is a simple matter in the sight of the Lord. He will also deliver the Moabites into your hand. Also, you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall cut down every good tree and stop up every uh, spring of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Besides the water that you asked for, I'm going to give you victory today too, God says. It's a little thing for me. Come to me beforehand, you know, God would say. But since you've come to me now, and you're trusting in me and you've come to the end of yourself, I want you to know something. I'm going to do this thing. And it's not going to come by the way you think. I'm, you're not going to fill ditches and it's going to rain. And it's going to be like a good water collection system. That's not how I'm going to do it. There's not going to be any wind that comes through. There won't be any physical reason for them to be filled with water, but they will be. They're just going to be filled with water. So what's their first step? Well, start digging ditches. Hey, everybody, start digging a ditch. And as big as they dug the ditch, that's how much water they got. I don't want to make a big spiritual thing out of this, but when God tells me to do something, I want to do it. How, how big a ditch do you want? How much water do you want? I think about the guy that says, take your stick and bang it on the ground, you know, and the prophet tells this king to do that. And so he bangs it on the ground like three or four or five or six times. I don't remember the story. Forgive me completely. And the prophet looks at him as he stops banging with the stick on the ground. And he says, it's too bad. He goes, what do you mean? What do you mean it's too bad? Because if you had banged that stick a thousand times, you would have had victory a thousand times. But because you only had enough faith to bang it like five or six times, that's how many times you're going to win. So when God tells me to dig a ditch because I'm about to fill it with water, guess what I'm doing? I'm digging swimming pools, man. I'm digging lakes if I can. Whatever I have in my hands, we're digging. We are going to dig, 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 and see how much water we can get from the Lord. And so they do. Everybody starts digging their ditch. Now it happened in the morning when the grain offering was offered that suddenly water came by way of Edom and the land was filled with water. And when all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, so meanwhile, over there in Moab, these guys are all watching to see what's happened with these three armies that are coming at them. They see they're stuck in the desert and there's no way and there's no water and they're standing there watching to see what's happened. It says, when they look across the land, the older were gathered and stood at the border. Then they rose up early in the morning and the sun was shining on those water, on those ditches over there. And the Moabites saw the water on the other side as red as blood because the sun was coming up. It was reflecting off all those ditches and that's supposed to be dry, barren ground, but it's full of wetness and it looks red to us. They come to a natural conclusion with their own sight. And they said, this is the blood. The kings have surely struck swords and have killed one another. Now, therefore, Moab uh, to the spoil. They thought these three kings couldn't get along, had killed themselves, and now all they needed to do was go up and wipe, just mop up the problem. Let's go and finish them all off kind of thing. Well, no, they were actually refreshed. I think the world sees the church that way a lot. I think they see a lot of infighting, and, and we don't like it either. We, arguments about how much water to use for baptism. Is it sprinkling? Is it dunking? Um, which version of the Bible do you use? Do you use this one, that one, or the other one? And there's some good reasons for those arguments for all of them. We have scripture to back up what we believe. We don't just have a, 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 a tradition that we follow. We, we base our what we do off of what we read in scripture. And so you've got reasons for that. And the world looks at it and says, you guys can't even agree on this. And they think they're going to come in and mop up. And I really think that's what the world thinks sometimes. But I tell you what, whatever we disagree on over here, 
As soon as those guys, the world, says something like this, maybe uh, Jesus is nothing but a fiction of your imagination. He's just a Mickey Mouse, whatever, gets our attention. And all of a sudden, we're not going to talk about water today. We're going to talk about Moab over there who thinks our God that we worship is nothing but Mickey Mouse. And all of a sudden, we're unified and we come together. We're, we're together on the important things, on things that matter, on the eternal things. Other things, well, we like to, you know, our tongues for today, our tongues not for today. We like to bicker about that stuff, and we shouldn't, but we do. But when it comes to Moab over there, the unbelievers, they see that and they think that we're ripe to be picked off. And I don't necessarily believe that. I think we have ditches full of water. I think to them it looks like blood. But for us, when you mention our God, when you mention our Jesus, you're picking a fight with all of us kind of thing. So they think they're just going to go to a mop-up. So when they came to the camp of Israel, Israel rose up and attacked the Moabites. Surprise! So they fled before them and they entered their land, killing the Moabites. Then they destroyed the cities and each man threw a stone on every good piece of land and filled it. And they stopped up the springs of water and cut down all the good trees. So everything so far is just like what the prophet said. And then finally this, but they left the stones of Ker Heraseth intact. However, the slingers surrounded and attacked it. So they tried to knock this last city down, but they were unsuccessful. Now, obviously, I, I don't want to nitpick, but the prophecy did say you shall attack every fortified city. And they did attack that last city. They just didn't have victory. Now, it could have been their own lack of fight and gumption that caused them not to finish that last city off. Maybe it wasn't that big of a deal, too great a loss or whatever. But for whatever reason, they didn't take out that last city. Verse 26, and when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took with him 700 men who drew swords to break through to the king of Edom. So they thought, well, we've got to get one of these kings. We've got to take the head off this serpent kind of thing. So they got 700 guys with swords. They all go in to try to take out this king, but they could not. It's an unsuccessful campaign. Then he took his eldest son. This is the king of Moab, took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. And there was great indignation against Israel. So they departed from him and returned to their own land. That's kind of a strange thing there. And I don't know necessarily how to teach it. So I'm going to give you some viewpoints, throw them all out if you want to. I really don't have an understanding on this. They see this king of Moab sacrifice his own son on the wall. And they're like, okay, wow. What a, what a waste, what a bunch of weirdos, or in fact, boy, they're in it for the long haul. He just sacrificed his firstborn, his only son on the wall, you know? It's not worth the fight, and they walked away, basically. It's not that big of a deal. They were, they, they were like, this is crazy, and, and uh, they decided to, to go home and go back to their own land, which is essentially what the scriptures say here. Um, it was just a bizarre thing, but now you know why they were fighting against Moab they're crazy. They were sacrificing their own kids in order to win. Um, and they said, that's not worth the fight. Now, was it worth the fight? Of course it was. We need to finish those things off. And so my, my last little exhortation or encouragement to you is you may run roughshod over most of the things in your life that are causing you to be separated from your God, the true and living God. You may be able to get rid of, but there may be one Moab in your life. One of those things that just, I 
don't know how to defeat this thing. This thing, I mean, it is, it comes back with a vengeance sometimes. It's vicious. I think I'm just going to walk away from this thing. Don't. Do battle. You may be throwing slings, you know, rocks at it with your slings the rest of your life. I don't know. But don't ever walk away from it. Don't ever give it room. Don't ever let it leave its footprint. May it be always on the defensive. That's the key. I don't know that you ever get rid of those things. I think everybody's got something like that in their life. I don't know anybody that's had complete victory. They've overcome by the blood of the lamb. Don't get me wrong. They're saved. They're going to heaven. But a lot of people have something stuck that they do battle with. And all I'm saying is do battle. Do battle. Wage war. You may lose sometimes. Your flesh may win and succumb to that temptation whatever it may be. I hope not. But if it does, get back up and throw more rocks is the idea. Pray more prayers. Spend more time in God's word. Be on the offensive. Constantly do battle. It's okay. Don't leave it alone and make room for it. It'll bring nothing but heartache to you when you allow it to just venture off unrestrained in your life. Do battle. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for this seemingly it's a little chapter that just brings us into the next beautiful miracle of Elisha. But how cool is this to see, first of all, how important you being the only true and living God in our lives and what these little G's in our lives can do to us if we leave them unchecked to bring doubt and worry into our lives. And then also the musician thing was just a neat thing for me that this prophet who hasn't needed a musician before needed one now. And as the song was played, he began to be able to prophesy, to hear from the Lord, to see clearly. And so, God, I pray that you'd help us to make music very important in our lives, worship music, praise music, and that we would take the time to do that. And if we only can make a noise, then I pray that we'd make a joyful noise unto you, Lord, but that we'd make it, that we'd sing to you, that we'd praise you for all that you are. And, and that changes us. We know that to receive your word. So Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, how it spoke to our hearts. And I pray that as it's working its way deep into our hearts, that it would have deep roots and then spring up in our lives and bring much fruit to us. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.